Welcome to the sixth season of Food for Thought, the podcast that talks about everything and anything as it pertains to health. This season, we are doing a deep dive into all things mental health and its connection to the core areas of health promotion, social wellness, nutrition, and physical activity. We know that mental health has been getting a lot of airtime, and yet there is still the belief that if you are struggling emotionally, psychologically, or mentally, that it's a sign of weakness, that it's not real, or that you're faking. It is a pervasive and very damaging belief, and it keeps people from getting the help that they need for fear of rejection, judgment, or even more shocking, punishment or retribution. The example of having no issues helping someone with a broken leg, but struggling to apply the same principles of care to an injury that can't be seen continues to be a stumbling block for people both who need and who want to provide help. Sometimes not knowing how to help is what keeps people from stepping forward, fear of saying the wrong thing or of being unsure how to respond or care. Hi everyone, I'm Carissa McKay, one of the health promotion specialists at CFB Edmonton, and to kick off the season and the new year, I'm happy to be here with Nicole Emerson and Heather Garot-Miller, my two amazing colleagues. This has been a topic that we knew was really going to come to a head when we were early into the pandemic, this so-called mental health tsunami that has been washing over us the last few years. It's always been there, but it was sort of hidden, and the real gaps in service were not as visible or as obvious, but the inability to get the help that people need in a timely manner has made things that much more difficult. I can't imagine how awful it would be to finally work up the nerve to reach out for help only to hear that you need to phone a helpline because the wait is weeks to months before you can be seen. So welcome back. I just want to know what are your takes on mental health and what's been going on recently? Thanks, Carissa. Happy to be back and to kick off the season talking about mental health. And I think from, from what we've heard and from doing the briefings and courses last year, that we are in like a bit of a crisis when it comes to mental health. The system is becoming more reactive. People, we know it's clear that people aren't doing well. They're burning out. And when or if they reach out for help, they're discovering that the system is breaking too. It's at a breaking point. And there's a, a lot of damage control that needs to be done. And people, obviously, they need to be pulled out of the river. They need to be helped where they're at right now. But we, as in the system, not just us, we can't stop there. We need to take that upstream approach or else it's not going to get any better. Well, I think a lot of what you're saying is what came to mind for me. When I think about the pandemic, it created this environment that fostered feelings of loneliness and fear and unmanageable stress for most of us. And on top of all of that, there was a lot of other things going on. It was amid coexisting societal hardships like racism and political extremism. And even we are currently facing economic disparity. That suggests that anxiety and depression rates soared over six times higher than pre-pandemic norms. There was no way that our already strained healthcare system, as you've already said, was prepared to handle any of this. And even if it was, for all the reasons that Carissa mentioned in her opening dialogue, so many people still are not reaching out for help. And just because the restrictions lifted, it doesn't mean that all those feelings of loneliness and fear and stress just magically go away. Those things tend to root themselves and they stay there until we do something and take action on them. So it's going to take awareness, first of all, for that person. It's going to take a desire to address those things and a supportive network around them. And in most circumstances, it 
It's going to take the support of a mental health worker, which, as we've already stated, has become really challenging to get at. Absolutely. I actually was just reading this morning a really cool analogy. And the question was, who needs to go to therapy or who would benefit from therapy? And it's from the Next Gen Men newsletter, which I would encourage everybody to subscribe to. And they were using the analogy of a house on fire as the reason why a person would have to call the emergency line, call 911. That would be when you're in mental health crisis. If your house is kind of in disrepair or it's messy or, you know, the electrical is starting to go, that would be where you're maybe comparing that to a mental illness where you need to do some stuff, but you can still kind of live there, but it's not ideal. So that's where therapy is absolutely essential in terms of doing things. It's not exactly proactive then at that point, but you're still catching things before they get to that crisis stage. And then the home maintenance, the stuff that you would like to do, you know, make the bathroom pretty or put in a new closet or whatever. That's the therapy that you go to when you just want to deal with stuff like for growth, for helping you to tackle maybe something that's coming up in your life, like a divorce or a baby or your in-laws are moving in or something, right? So I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at how we need to look at therapy because Maybe it gives people options in terms of where is it that they can go for help without feeling that they have to go to that crisis place, which is right now absolutely overloaded. And are there other things that we can maybe start to focus on a little bit more or that will help? And I think that that's kind of where we want to go today is like, what else can we do to start to fill in some of those gaps? What I thought was really interesting was the feedback that we received after some of the annual briefings that we had done as it relates to mental health. And then when I was on leave over the holidays, I was listening to a number of podcasts that were talking about mental health. And it's a phenomenon that's not surprisingly not isolated to the CAF community. The same issues and fears are seen in professional sports like hockey and basketball, to name a few. And I was reading this really interesting blog, and I don't even know how I got here. It was from the Mental Health Association of East Tennessee. And there was a quote from Keon Dooling. He's an NBA guy. And the quote says, when we have diabetes, we go get treated. When we tear our ACL, we go get surgery. But if our heart is broken or our soul is hurting, what do we do? We just internalize it. We become hard. We spend our whole lives running from the ghost until one day it catches up to us. And I, he, Keon Dooling, speaks from personal experience. And he says that all the alcohol and all the women and all the money in the world will not solve the problem. The only way to finally escape is to stop running and turn around and face the ghost. And so I 100% agree with that. But getting to the point where you can turn around to actually face the ghost is probably the hardest part. And I think that that's the piece that a lot of people struggle with the hardest. They think that they can just deal with it, push it to the side, do whatever. But I also think that it is in talking about what you're feeling, thinking, and doing as a result of that ghost that might be totally unconscious, that ghost that you cannot face, that when you're able to start talking about that, that that's the first step in starting to get you to the point where you can eventually fully turn around and do what you need to do to address it. I don't know if that makes sense, but that was kind of what I took from that article. What do you think? Well, I think it makes total sense. And I think about my first time ever talking to somebody about my feelings of depression. And I spent years running away from that ghost, as you said. And it was that moment when I actually decided that I was just going to say it, which was so hard to do. And all I kept thinking after I finally told my doctor what was going on with me is, why did I wait so long? I, you know, chased this away, this ghost for so long. And, you know, it was just torture. And yet it was like somebody just turned a switch. 
all by me just being able to have that simple conversation and open the door for myself. It was such a huge difference in my life. So when I think about conversation, I also think about where and why a conversation may or may not be happening. Where are you? What are you doing at that moment? And what is going on around you? These and other things that we're going to talk about are important considerations because all of that can either set the stage or it can sabotage you and sabotage your efforts to start that conversation and open that door. When I think about conversations that I had with my son when he was younger, I think about what was successful for me and where I really struggled. And I think the times that I really struggled with him was when I was really reactive to things that were going on between us, rather than giving us both some air. And so when I gave him space and I gave me space before we had those conversations, they actually went a lot smoother. So I would open the conversation with simply saying, I need to have a conversation with you about whatever that was happening in that moment. I want to give you some time to think about that. And let's talk later, you know, in a day or two. And I always found that it helped me because I wasn't reactive. But it also gave him a chance to not be reactive because I needed to give him the same permission I was giving myself to not be on the defense when we entered that conversation. That's just my food for thought on that. Absolutely. I think that is completely key, especially, and I'm not trying to be sexist here, but especially when it comes to men, right? I think that there was two things, Heather, that you said that I think are really important. And the first was that you had that conversation where you sort of finally opened up about something to your doctor. And I think that that is often a place where men may find that they can have that conversation because they're already talking about some other stuff that might be going on, right? Like, so that that sort of ick factor is already there, but it might also be a person that they have a little bit of a rapport with. And I mean, if you can't tell your doctor, who can you tell, right? Like, I mean, I think that that comes in there. But I, I love that piece that you mentioned around giving people time to be out of that reactive space because you're not going to be able to have a conversation if you're both like just pinging off of each other and you're just escalating things, right? So I think that's huge. And I think that the other piece to consider, and this comes back to my sexist comment, is that I don't often think of men having the same ways of communicating as women do. And I don't think it's because they can't communicate. I think that women are just more likely to do it. We are more likely to have those conversations. Women have the conversations. They talk to their doctor about things. So does that mean that women have more mental health issues? I don't think so. I think it's just we talk about them. And so they're noted. So we're more likely to talk. We're more likely to engage in a conversation, to share what's going on for us and to get feedback or ask for suggestions. So I think it's easier for us as women to get to that place where we can eventually deal with that ghost or even just deal with that circumstance or situation like what you and your son might have been going through. And I think that the idea of those conversations that happen shouldn't necessarily have to be face-to-face over a coffee, which is what we often will recommend. But I think that sometimes that's terrifying because then you have to stare into each other's eyeballs. Whereas I think sometimes it's easier if you do it side by side when you're doing something else, because when you're creating a space or an opportunity to have a conversation that doesn't feel really intense, sometimes that side by each piece is a little bit easier. So if I'm working on a puzzle or crocheting or painting a wall with my husband or really doing anything, those typically are the times when some of those conversations take place that you never would have dreamed of being able to have because this other thing is acting as a, not a distraction, but it's something else you can focus on as you get down to the business of the issue that might be causing the problem or upsetting you both or or whatever the case may be. You know, and That makes a lot of sense. And it makes me think about when I was younger 
And my dad and I would go for walks. And on those walks, that allowed that opportunity to have those big conversations about life and whatever comes out of that. But it was conversations that I think if if it was forced and, you know, we're staring into each other's eyeballs, it would have been awkward and maybe wouldn't have happened. But because we're, we're out on a walk and and it just allowed for them to just organically kind of happen and feel comfortable because it wasn't forced and it wasn't awkward. And, and it makes me think about now today with my kids, you know, how am I going to foster that moving on and, and be able to have those conversations with them? Because I, I have a boy and I have a girl and I want them both to be able to have those conversations with me. So I'm going to file this away for future reference and hopefully I'll be able to remember that. The thing that struck me from the quote from Keon is that is the acknowledgement of the fact that all the alcohol and women and money in the world weren't going to help. That is, I think, one of the biggest challenges when we are doing our briefings and we talk about addictions, it's important that we start to look at the bigger picture. And it's important that we are open to and notice that what might be going on with the person, what do we see? What are they doing? Or maybe even more importantly, what are they no longer doing? How are they acting? All of those things that can provide clues that maybe something is going on. That's not to say that you only want to have a conversation with someone when things are crappy, But I think it's important that we are paying more attention to others and showing compassion by maybe starting a conversation with those words that you mentioned in your briefing this year, Carissa, that we often say without thinking, but not really meaning what we say, how are you doing can be such a powerful question, but only when it is asked with the intention of really wanting to hear the answer and not accepting fine as the answer. It's amazing when you start to pay attention to the interactions that you have on any given day, how many times you hear that question and how many times you reflexively say or answer, fine, when oftentimes you want to say, actually, things really suck right now. My kid is sick, but I had to take them to daycare anyway. I forgot to pack a water bottle in my son's lunch and I have a splitting headache. It can be just the day-to-day stuff that wears us down, not just life-threatening stuff. It doesn't have to be deep or heavy to still have an impact on how we are doing in that moment. And it is in those moments that we have an opportunity to connect with another human being and acknowledge how crappy that must be, how we wish we could do something to help, and how we hope the day will get better. It doesn't have to be any grand gesture. Just that acknowledgement from one human being to another can make all the difference. Exactly. But it's in being able to recognize that, recognizing the significance of those daily interactions and the ability to have that quick chat that shows that you see them in that crappy place. And there is an understanding that there really isn't anything that you can do, but that you understand that it sucks for them right now. And you're acknowledging that. That's the tricky part. I don't know that that skill, and it absolutely is a skill, is something that a lot of people know how to tap into necessarily, especially these days where we don't actually do very well with conversations generally. (laughs) I'd have to agree with that. When what we see is interactions that mostly seem to take place electronically, especially, it can be really hard for many of us to learn those more nuanced skills of having 
any kind of conversation. Though I have to say, when I am out for dinner and enjoying myself, I do hear people talking. So clearly there are still conversations happening. But I think what we're getting at is the fact that a lot of what people say, and this is true for most people, is that it can be just a lot of surface chatter. The stuff that doesn't really matter, the hockey game, or maybe griping about your work or your partner or whatever. But then there are these walls that appear when things just get a little bit too close for comfort. Then we really start to clam up and we struggle just to get the words out or even get the courage to initiate the conversation, even if it doesn't sound pretty. And really, those walls are effective for a reason. We don't generally, no matter how much stuff might be going on for anyone, just go around blathering everything in our lives to everyone. And that's also not what we're saying. Everyone should ideally have one or two people that they are really comfortable with they know that they can unload their woes onto without fear or judgment or shame. But I don't know that that's always the case. And when people are posted far away from their family and friends, it can be hard to reach out to them. Although here again, that the technology, which is not all bad, is actually super helpful because you can FaceTime or WhatsApp or Google Meet or whatever from pretty much anywhere in the world. But again, Depending on where in the world you are and what you are doing there, it might not be the best time. You know what I mean? So it's this balance where we need to have these people in our lives that we can turn to in hard times, but also not to keep that pool of people so specific and unchangeable that we prevent ourselves from having sounding boards wherever we go. We also need to respect that everyone has stuff going on and we need to be just as able to read them as they are of reading us. That mutual understanding and appreciation that we respect each other and don't want to add that additional burden. But that is where that balance comes in again. We don't want to add additional burdens if we sense that there might be something going on, but we can't use that as an excuse to not look for help at all. Most people genuinely want to help when they are able to. Absolutely. And I think that that's that whole trick that that Heather was mentioning that, you know, it's sometimes difficult to start that conversation or to think, is this a good time to have that conversation? And most of the conversations that a person is going to have, they're not necessarily going to be ones that sound pretty. They're not going to sound scripted or, you know, that fear of saying the wrong thing. I think a lot of people have that. I think that part of the challenge that we see in what we do comes down to the fact that the idea of appearing weak or incapable is inherently built into the fabric of the military. And it's understandable where that comes from. We know what the expectations are when people sign on that dotted line. But the reality is that they still remain human beings. And that, I can't even imagine how tough of a balancing act that would be to maintain. And I think that we would also argue that it's easier to maintain that balancing act when things in your life are going well, when your relationships are solid, when you feel like you're doing a good job and your efforts are being recognized or acknowledged in some way, and when your health is not giving you any grief. But when something starts to slip and there's more energy needed to keep all those moving parts in place and appearing to still be functioning, that's when maintaining the appearance of being able to keep things balanced really start to appear. That's when the cracks start to appear. That idea we've been talking about that Brene described as wearing masks and armoring up to get through the day, that's when that also really kicks into high gear. 
We pretend to the world that we have our shit together when really it's all just hitting the fan. But because we don't want to appear weak or needy, instead of asking for help when things start to go south, a lot of people try to suck it up or sort it out on their own. And it's only when things have hit a crisis point, when your house is on fire, like that previous example, that either someone has to intervene or like in that quote from Keon, there comes that realization that all the stuff that I'm trying to do to survive this just isn't going to cut it anymore. And I think that's when we, if we're starting to see those cracks in individuals and we start to notice that maybe there's a, that facade or that armor that Brene Brown is talking about, that we create an opportunity for them to be able to have that conversation because that's really tough when you're in the mud for you to be the one to start the conversation. And yes, we do have personal responsibility, but is this really challenging? And if we are on the outside and we can see it and we can open that door, then it's going to make it so much easier for that person to be able to walk through. In this year's mental fitness annual briefing, one of the key takeaways was remembering the acronym ALEC. So where you A, you're asking a person how they're feeling and really wanting the answer. Your L, listening to their answer and picking up on any nonverbal cues or signs that you might be noticing. Then it's E and you're encouraging them to take action, whether that is seeking out help from a professional or simply making a point to talk more to someone or trying to offload tasks for them that are a real struggle right now, or maybe they just weren't even their responsibility in the first place. And lastly, C, the checking in part. So making sure that you're continuing, you're continuing to re-engage with that person every once in a while to make sure that they're doing okay. And if they're not, seeing if there are other steps or things that might need to be considered that they could try. But I think that here again, and it was touched on earlier, this acronym is helpful when you think there might actually be a personal crisis or issue that's going on. But if we aren't good at having conversations in the first place where the stakes are much, much, much lower, then I feel like we might be setting ourselves up for a disaster as well as that person that we are trying to help. So some of it is maybe just starting off with learning how to have a conversation with each other again. I don't know how many times I'm sitting in a restaurant or in a pub with my husband and I see people sitting at tables looking at their phones and not even communicating with each other. We have lost that art of conversation. So maybe it's starting there rather than the heavy stuff. I just, I have to share this story because I thought of it when you're saying that, Heather. And my mother-in-law, she traveled out, she lives in PEI. She traveled to Alberta a couple of years ago to come see us. And she doesn't travel very often. She doesn't take the plane very often or at all, really. And so this is like her second time flying. And she gets out here. And she's commenting on how nobody talks to one another on the plane, (laughs) how everyone is just on their phone. They have their earphones in or their earplugs or whatever. And she's looking around because she wants to have a conversation. And I think part of that is, you know, probably her age and how she grew up, but also small community PEI. You can't go to the grocery store for five items without having like 10 conversations because you know everyone. And so, but I find it kind of funny because... That's what what I do. I don't I don't talk to the person beside me on the plane. I don't really care. <laughs> so, but maybe I should. Like, anyways, I thought that was it's an interesting perspective. And and all I said to her, well, you don't travel very much, do you? Because we don't really talk to one another. <laughs> 
But getting back to the whole like being able to have those conversations, if we can't talk, if we can't engage in that small talk, then how are you expected to have those big conversations? So I think that that's such an important point. And we know that conversation is a lost art. We see how people choose not to engage in, well, even in our courses and during a workshop at a break time, they're choosing to instead scroll on their phone and maybe they're checking emails. Maybe they're slammed at work and they need to see what's going on. Maybe they're catching up on TikTok to get the latest news update. I don't know. But what they're not doing most of the time is talking to one another. It's that these small talk conversations that are such a great way to practice the skills of listening, asking the right questions and knowing when it's your turn to contribute. And it seems sort of crazy that these are the skills that we need to mention, but here we are. You know, my my son is in grade two. Should they be <laughs> talking about this now? Probably. We've all heard of the saying, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me. I think that what happens a lot of the time is that people assume that folks don't want to talk or that people aren't interested in what they have to say. So they turn to their phones as a way to avoid making people feel uncomfortable or being rejected. And the irony is that if you took a chance and talked to someone at your table, you might actually enjoy yourself or learn something and possibly make a connection at work that might prove to be helpful at another time. We all need more allies. And the assumptions that we make about people's willingness to talk or to listen, to be there or or not to be there can hurt our efforts to connect, to have people want to connect with us and to get or feel better. We are social beings and we keep saying that and we need other people for a variety of reasons in our lives, but they are only going to be there if we get better at communicating with each other. Another really important aspect to consider here is that we don't need to be in agreement with everyone to be able to have good conversation. Just because you disagree doesn't mean you need to pull out of the conversation. And just because you don't agree or understand what someone is going through doesn't mean you still can't engage or be helpful or supportive. The idea that we have to like and agree with everyone in order to be able to have a relationship with them is false on so many levels. When we reach out, despite not being in agreement with someone, their choices, their behaviors, because we want to help a fellow human being, that's huge. That's what community is all about. That's what it means to belong to something. That's what connection is all about. And when we have that, so many of the problems that people are dealing with right now can finally be addressed because what we have created in that process with everyone participating in conversations, getting out of their comfort zones and learning more about other ways of thinking or being is an environment that will be more tolerant of differences, more open to helping and more supportive of making sure that people get the help that they need. And the fact that that can literally start with a conversation that whole process that you just described, Nicole, that's amazing. The title of this episode is How to Help a Buddy, The Power of Conversation. And I think that we have not only provided listeners with a few tips on how to have hard conversations, but hopefully also some ideas on how to have any kind of conversation. The ones that will help a person get help. 
the ones that will eventually help to prevent a lot of the things that are causing people to struggle right now, and the ones that will help to lay the groundwork for the changes that we need to see in our world, our organizations, our communities. The power of conversation is real, and hopefully people will be inspired and motivated to start having them, whether it's about the weather, something that they're really struggling with at work, or anything else. Thanks so much, as usual, ladies, for your thoughts and your wisdom. I feel that we've only just actually started to begin to scratch the surface on this. I feel like I don't want to have this episode end, but in the interest of time, we can come back to this. So thank you to you both for a great conversation as usual, and thanks to our listeners. And I'm absolutely looking forward to bringing more great content this season to you all out there on Food for Thought. So please, everybody, subscribe and comment wherever you like to listen. And until next time, take care, stay healthy, and we'll see you on the flip-flop.